for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, Sean wondered if this was all there was to life. He was walking through one of those trials that it just felt like the end of the world for him. He was depressed and he didn't know what to do about it. Further, he voiced that, you know, as a, as a black man, he felt like, you know, as an African-American man, I'm supposed to only have like two emotions, happiness or anger, which of course is not true, but he, he felt those even cultural pressures that, that he couldn't be transparent when he was weak. Sean had grown up in a, in a small town, and in that small town, he was the best athlete uh, in his school, and he uh, graduated at the top of his class. And so, as a result, he had gotten an academic scholarship at a very well-known ACC school. And while he was there, in addition to getting this academic scholarship and being a kid who graduated at the top of his class in high school, he was this great athlete, and so he walked on both the track team and the football team. This guy was impressive, Okay. However, he struggled with transitioning from being a big, smith, a, a big fish in a, in a small pond to being then a, a small fish in a very big pond, right? Many of us, when we went off to college, we felt that struggle. And so for the first time in his life, he was having trouble keeping up in class. I mean, he was working harder than he had ever worked on his schoolwork, and he was making the worst grades he had ever made. And then on the football team, he had a... Uh, he thought, man, I'm going to really come in there and, and make a difference. And even though they kind of saw his potential, they quickly redshirted him. And he wasn't even like dressing up for the games, okay? He was just sitting there in the stands. And then on the track team, he had been his freshman year in high school, the fastest kid in his entire district beginning his freshman year in high school. But here he goes off to college. And he's the slowest kid on his relay team. And he's just starting to feel that pressure from the other guys on his relay squad. He put on a brave face when he went home for Christmas, but he slid into a serious depression when he got back to campus. And really, all he could think about was his failures. And fatigue turned into skipping classes. And then he started missing practices. And then, you know, with this trial, he just began to lose hope. Again, he started feeling like this is all there is to life, and he began to lose hope. As days turned into weeks, he just stayed in bed all day. He would just uh, get out of bed to use the restroom, and that was it. Over and over, he wondered, is this all there is to life? Listen, even if you aren't an overwhelmed college student, there's times where we ask that question, right? Is this, is this present material world, is this all that there is? And we ask that question, and maybe even we feel that question when we're walking through a trial, Right? Like it just feels like this is all that there is and we begin to get discouraged and subtly ask that question. You see, when we go through difficult trials in this life, those trials can overwhelm us and they can depress us if we believe this material world is all that there is. Listen, um, I, I know that like if Pastor Josh called you and said, do you believe that when you die you're going to heaven? I, I, I get that you'll probably say yes in that moment. But, but in reality, there's still times where we subtly struggle to believe that. And that's what's going on when we're uh, so overwhelmed and depressed by this world that we just, all we can see is right here, is that we have this subtle belief that this is all there is. And, and listen, um, I think the pandemic is going to shape a couple of generations in some really lasting ways. And I, and I actually think in some of those ways, they're very good. 
Like I think our children and young adults, like I think they're going to value relationships more than they ever had. I think they're going to be very intentional with the relationships that they have. I, I think they're going to be able to navigate uh, technology better and know like what you can do, you know, sitting from your, uh, you know, your dinner table at home on a computer and then what you need to actually go into the office for. I think they're going to be able to navigate that. Well, I also think it's going to help them just persevere in life better. But no matter how we dress it up, the reality of it is, is the pandemic has been a trial, right? The snowstorm has been a real trial. And, and, to, and to compound all this further, it's all lasting longer than all of us expected, right? We're just in a trial. We're in dark days. These are, these are hard moments. And it's easy for us to believe, again, just kind of looking at the present. This is all there is. Is there anything beyond this? And listen, when we get there, that becomes a very hopeless reality, right? That's why Revelation 21, one day, is so important. Because what it does is it takes our eyes up and out of the present uh, and, and the present trials, and it puts our eyes up on something that is more glorious. And, and it enables us to then filter these trials that we walk through because we're tempted to believe and even feel that this world is all there is when we're in a trial. And, and sometimes we just have to pause, back up, remember these gospel truths about our glorious future, and that's how we're able uh, to get through it. God is making all things new. Therefore, we need to even imagine eternity. Because as we ponder the new heavens and the new earth, what inevitably happens is, is we're encouraged in our trials, and also it then helps us persevere in life. Okay, before we dive into Revelation 21, let me just say five super fast things about the book of Revelation and the context here. And if you're an end times nerd, you're going to be totally disappointed because we just, I've got to go fast here, okay? Number one, there's about four different ways to kind of interpret, in general, the book of Revelation, okay? There's the idealist view. There's the preterist interpretation. There's a historical way uh, to interpret it. But there's also a futurist way to interpret the book of Revelation. Now, some of these different camps have popped up at different times uh, in church history. Today, as in really the entirety of church history, most people, including myself, you know, and most even uh, biblical scholars, they look at Revelation from the futurist uh, perspective. What that means is, is we look at Revelation and we say, okay, this is talking about something that's going to happen in the future. That's my conviction and that's how we're looking at it today. Second, um, I think there's a lot of valid ways to interpret the book of Revelation. But as I study the book of Revelation, I don't really see valid ways to not interpret it as literally as possible, okay? Now, I get there's weird things in Revelation. I do think there's a lot of symbolic things in there. But I also think that most of this stuff, we're supposed to understand these things in a literal way. Like I think Jesus is literally and physically returning, okay? And so I think some of these things are, are going to physically and literally happen. Nerds, if you want a category for me, I'm a progressive dispensationalist. So if you know what that is, you're my people and I like you, even if you're not one. Just the fact that if you know what that means, great. If you don't, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to go look that up. <laughs> progressive dispensationalism is my little camp. One of the, the reasons why I'm there is, is, is that's an attempt to understand the discontinuity and the continuity between the two Testaments, but also to value in that understanding some of the physical and literal ways uh, to interpret the prophecies. Now, this comes into play when you talk about the chronology of the book of Revelation. I think there's a chronology, especially here at the end, when you look at Revelation 20, and now we're looking at Revelation 21, Basically, the way I interpret it is, is Revelation 20 happened before 
Revelation 21, okay? Maybe not everybody interprets it that way, but we're going to look at the word. In fact, that first word that's in most of your translations in Revelation 21.1, I think that's referring to something chronological. What I'm getting at is I think the millennial kingdom happens before the new heavens and the new earth. So if you've been tracking this series, basically I've kind of taught it as, listen, when you pass away, you're immediately in a place called heaven that Jesus described as paradise. Then there's a moment where he returns and he sets up this millennial kingdom, and I think it's a thousand years, where he reigns on this earth for a thousand years. Then, that's the first word in the ESV on Revelation 21, after that, I think we enter into for eternity what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth, and that's what we're going to look at today. Fourth point here is that uh, even though I think there's literal connections in all this, and, and these things actually happen in a literal way, I think it's a fruitless exercise to spend too much time trying to see all these like connections in this world, okay? And so this is a silly one, but it's a real one. Many people look at Revelation 9 and they say, those grasshoppers are Russian helicopters. I, I don't know, okay? I, maybe they are, maybe they're not. I, personally, I just don't spend a lot of time on that. I, and here's why. First off, I, I think it's a little goofy, but... But maybe more important than that, I think too much uh, maybe um, ungrounded and maybe wild speculation, it actually takes away from what I think is, is the, uh, the main purpose and thrust of the book of Revelation. They're going through a trial, and God gives the early church and then us this book to tell us about the future, to, to encourage us and to help us persevere through our trials. So I think what I found is if we spend too much time on Russian helicopters, it, it just takes away from that. Are you with me? If, if you're there, I'm seriously not trying to make fun of you, but we just don't do a lot of that around here. So uh, number five, Revelation provides us with a lot of mystery. There's a lot of unanswered questions in the book of Revelation, but I don't want that to scare you away from it because there's enough clarity in the book of Revelation for us to get the point that he's trying to make. And again, that point is, is that when you're in a trial, when you're discouraged, pull your eyes up and out of that and look to your glorious future. And, and there are some clear teachings in here that Jesus is returning. He's making all things new and that you're gonna get to dwell with him forever. So what's your eternal hope? Follow along as I read Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband." Again, for me, that and then is a chronological statement. So I think this is happening after this millennial kingdom that's discussed in Revelation 20. After uh, the millennial kingdom comes this new heaven, this new earth. This is the eternal dwelling, and thus it's the eternal hope. So your eternal hope is paradise. It is the millennial kingdom, but it's really ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. And in that new heavens and the new earth, uh, it is going to be new it's going to come down from God, and it's going to be like a bride. Newness is about distinction, right? The old has passed away. The new has come. The first creation was not permanent. So one of the distinctions is, is that this is eternal. Now, typically when you talk about something new, it's typically better, right? Uh, and that's the case here. 
But, but really, distinction is the main deal, but we're also supposed to see it as better. So there's a sense that the old world is being renewed and being improved upon. It, there's still, uh, it, it's, it's a type of earth, and it's a type of heaven. And so, you know, we're going to kind of know our way around it. I mean, we've lived our whole lives on earth, and if we pass away before this happens, we're, we're going to live in existence in heaven. So it's a type of earth, and it's a type of heaven, but it's a renewal of it. it it's better. It's taking it to its intended end. Finally, there's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, namely Isaiah 66 that's found here. But next, the new heavens and the new earth come down from God. He creates it. He establishes it. He gets the glory for it. He gets the credit for it. This is his idea, okay? He wants us to see our hope for this future. The new heavens and the new earth is God's glorious future for you. And he's, he's brought it to you as this gift that comes down from him, and we're to see it as a gift from him. And, and uh, what's your eternal hope? Well, it should be that God is making all things new in the eternal heavens, uh, in the eternal new heavens and the new earth. Now, this glorious future is like a beautiful bride. He says in verse 2, adorned for her husband. Now, I generally kind of have an ugly cry. I'm kind of an emotional guy, and you might have seen that over the years here. The, the ugliest of all my ugly cries was watching Kristen walk down the aisle when we got married. I mean, I was just overcome by all of it. I mean, she just looked stunning. I was confused why she was choosing to marry me. I was actually getting worried that is my cry so ugly that, like, she's going to turn around and walk out. I was just, I felt the weight and the glory of that moment, and I couldn't believe that this beautiful woman was marrying me. Brides are beautiful. There's something beautiful about the new heavens and the new earth. Brides are also inspiring, aren't they? Like, like what do you do when, when she starts walking down the aisle? What's the tradition? We stand up, and we're all trying to, trying to see this beautiful bride. There, there's something inspiring about that moment. And in the same way, there's something inspiring about this new heaven and this new earth coming down. The, the, all that kind of leads to the, the, seeing that bride in, in her gown, it, it, it makes you happy, right? It's a happy moment. And listen, gray hairs, uh, maybe you can validate this with me, but the older I get, the more happiness I find in, in a wedding, right? It, it just takes you back to young love, and you see this couple doing it as they're supposed to do it, and it's this beautiful moment, and it just, the older I get and the more weddings I go to, the more I just enjoy that moment. It, it's just a happy, there's a happiness about that moment. It, it's just this moment in life that is inspiring and beautiful and happy. Our eternal hope is that God is making all things new. But the next question that I have on here on your outline is, but why? What ultimately makes it glorious? Look at the next verses with me. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We're supposed to see the new heavens and the new earth as a return to the Garden of Eden. And in fact, I think we're supposed to see all of the Bible kind of bookending here. It starts with the Garden of Eden, and then it lands with uh, this new heavens and the new earth. And as you think about the Garden of Eden, what was the best thing about the Garden of Eden? It was that they just walked and talked with God. Like they were just in his presence in a more physical and intimate way than we are today. Adam and Eve were truly dwelling with God. Of course, in the garden, when sin comes, it, it separated uh, humanity from that relationship, right? 
Like sin just poisons all relationships. It, it certainly poisons relationships with each other, right? But it also poisons our relationships vertically with God. And, and that's what it did in the garden, that, that sin separated them in a, in a very real way from their relationship with God. Now, we know that through our belief in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, that that's how we can be made right with Jesus again. That's how we can have this restored right relationship with God. But we also know, and this is kind of our, maybe our tagline for our church, broken people loving broken people. We recognize the brokenness of this world. We recognize we haven't returned to Eden yet, okay? But this has always been God's covenant promise. This has always been his desire to dwell with his people. He's always wanted to return to Eden. This is what uh, the covenant was always intended to achieve. Now, the aim of God's covenant has always been to enjoy this glorious dwelling with his people. That's what it was like in Eden. That, that, that was kind of the, the picture of the tabernacle, if you think about it in the Old Testament. Like God was there in the middle of all the, tw the 12 tribes. He was dwelling in the middle. If you think about it, moving forward in the Old Testament, you have the temple, and the temple was in the middle of the nation, and it was meant to you know, be God's indwelling presence with his people. And then you move to now in the church, and, and we're, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, and, and he's in our presence. And so this has always been part of God's covenant promises. But, but it's never been this glorious return to Eden yet. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be gloriously dwelling with God in a perfect way, even more perfect than Eden. The covenant promises of God, his covenant aims and intentions that began in Eden are finally perfectly fulfilled. What's our eternal hope? It's that, it's that the new heavens and in the new earth, God is making all things new. Amen? And in that new heavens and in the new earth, to make it even better, we're going to dwell with God perfectly. Like, like that's, that's the promise of it. That's the thing that's supposed to give us hope in our darkest days is that we're going to just get to walk with him like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. So no matter what happens in your life, dwelling with God is your eternal future. Amen? This is our great hope today. But let me ask another question, this third question. But what are the implications of dwelling with God? Okay, this, this is supposed to be our hope, dwelling with God, and, and the world is going to be whole. But maybe let's, uh, let's dress this up a little. Let's ponder this. What, like, what does that really mean? Well, I think in these next verses, we're going to see three things. Number one, it means that death passes away. Number two, it means that all things are made new and whole. And number three, the thirsty will be satisfied. Look at verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Friends, when you're in the new heavens and the new earth, you're never going to experience any form of suffering ever again. All of it is gone. Sin has poisoned our bodies. It's poisoned our mind. It's poisoned our relationship. But there, Jesus has abolished for eternity all the poisonous effects of sin. Isn't that a glorious reality? I, I, we can't even get our heads around this. I, Isaiah said it this way, that he will swallow up death forever. Just ponder that for a moment. He swallowed all that up. It means that we will never experience the heartache that we felt at the funeral. We'll never experience that again. We'll, we'll never cry those tears that we cried at the edge of that casket. All of that is done away with for eternity. It also says that, uh, Paul said it this way, that that, the, that sharp pain of death that, that he experienced, 
all that will just like be mocked at in eternity. It's so uh, thrown away. He, he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? He's mocking death itself. This thing that brings us so much crushing pain. He has such hope in the future that he makes fun of death itself. Where, where, is, your, where, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? This is what happens when we dwell with God. What a triumph. What a glory. You see, all things will be made new. Let's keep reading in verse 5 and the first part of verse 6. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the the Omega, the beginning and the end. There's a a switch here. Now Jesus is talking directly to us. And he wants us to record these truths because all things are going to be made new. All things are going to be made whole. But Jesus clearly says that he is the one who accomplishes this shalom for us. Jesus is the one who does it. And listen, that's meant to give us great hope because this shalom, this wholeness, all things being made new, it's not based upon a politician or a policy bringing it about. There's no human thing bringing it about. If that were the case, do we really have hope in it, right? But, but it's different here. Jesus himself is bringing this about. He's better. He's distinct. He's bringing about uh, all those things. And thus, we can have great confidence in us. This is supposed to bring us great hope. You see, when he said, uh, when he finished his work on the cross, you remember what he cried out? It is finished, right? He says something similar here. It is done. It's supposed to be this same impact that he's declaring victory. He's accomplished what he has set out to accomplish. So our hope in the future is real because it's not in a human to accomplish it. It's in Jesus himself to accomplish. It's done is what he shouts. And then he starts talking about being the alpha and omega. That's about authority for him. He's saying, listen, I have authority over all this. That's why you can be uh, confident in this, is that I have authority over that. I've ruled over all creation from the beginning. I've brought about life from eternity past. I've brought about, uh, I'm going to bring in this eternal future for you, as well as everything in between. So the newness is certain because the Alpha and Omega wills it. Therefore, as a result, the thirsty will be satisfied. Look again there at verse 6 and then 7. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You remember Jesus with the woman at the well in John 4? He talks about having living water. What he's telling her there is that he has this water that is so glorious that you're never going to thirst again. It's, it's going to be satisfying, eternally satisfying in that way. Later on in John 7, he said it this way, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see, today in this present, we, we get sips of that satisfaction, right? Like there's moments that we're communing with God, and it's incredibly satisfying, right? And listen, that points to something uh, more glorious, something more perfect. We're, we're going to have perfect satisfaction in the future, Listen, my hope for this series is that as you ponder these truths, that it brings you that type of satisfaction. That, that it, if you're thirsty in those ways, that, that it satisfies you, that it brings your eyes up and out of the trials of this world. 
Brothers and sisters, when we get there, we will never thirst again. Our souls will be filled. And this is because when we persevere and when we overcome in this world, as he talks about um, in in verse 7, that through the power of the Spirit, we will get to dwell with God as his children. He will be our God and we will be his son. We will be his children. That's the end result of believing this and persevering through trials and trusting him is that we're going to overcome this world and then we're going to be in his presence in this perfect way. Listen, even in John's day when this revelation was initially given to him, they were walking through trials. Maybe it was different than our trials today, but they, but they were meant to see this as an encouragement to keep persevering, keep overcoming, because there's this glorious thing at the end. We're going to be satisfied in Him. We're going to get to dwell with Him as His children. That's our hope. So it's a call to persevere, to overcome, to conquer, because the Father awaits. But what about those who don't overcome? What about those who don't believe? I think I termed it this way in, in your bulletin, but what about the unfaithful? Look at verse 8, and this will be our our final verse about the unfaithful. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Listen, we've got some lawyers in here. The the reality of justice, right, there's kind of two perspectives of justice. You see, when justice comes, if you're not the criminal, that's a really great day, isn't it? But if you're the criminal, that day of justice is a really dark day for you, right? So so when the king has come here and he's set this up and and you have this perfect rule, you have this perfect law, those who refuse to follow that law and follow that word and follow those ways, they're not going to be there. The Bible clearly says they're not going to be in the presence of God. They're going to be in what he describes as a second death. They're they're going to spend eternity away from us and away from God. And listen, this is one of the key motivations for us uh, to be evangelists, right? Like, we need to be really clear. The purpose of Redeemer Church is to proclaim that gospel to the world around us. And I know we live in Texas, and I know we live in suburbia, many of us. But listen, most of the people around us are not going to heaven. Most of the people around us are not going to the new heavens and the new earth. And this verse, verse 8, should rattle us. It should stir this loving motivation within us to be a church and a people that share the gospel. But the question here is, I think, is who are the unfaithful? Who are the ones who will reject dwelling with God? They're going to be on this list of vices here, and there's eight of them. Let's just walk through it. They're the ones who are cowards. What, what that means is, is they're not going to stand according their, uh, to their righteous convictions in the, in the face of public pressure. You see, they're the ones that are faithless. So they're trusting in them, themselves or they're trusting in some sort of creation rather than trusting in the Creator. The third one is they're detestable, which means that they're embracing the offensive. They're, they're happy to be offensive to God, to offensive to other people. There's just something detestable about them. They don't care about God. They don't care about those around them. And they live detestable lives. They're murderers. They're not protecting and preserving those that are created in the image of God. They're sexually immoral. Well, what an indictment upon our culture today, right? 
They're the sexually immoral, which means they're turning vices into virtues and things that were meant to be this demonstration of, of a pure, committed love. They're turning those things into selfish, gross fetishes. They're taking these things and they're, they're taking their fleshly desires and they're saying, this is my identity, this is who I am, rather than this gift that is supposed to be done in, in, uh, according to God's word. They're sorcerers, which means they're, they're trying to control the spiritual realm rather than being controlled by the Spirit of God. They're idolaters, which means they're, they're finding their greatest pleasure in the created rather than the creator. And finally, the last one on here, they're, they're liars, which means they're rejecting truths so that they can elevate themselves in the eyes of the world. Brothers and sisters, we are to be warned to avoid everything on this list because it's a trap. Everything on that list promises abundant life. Everything on that list promises satisfaction. Everything on that list promises happiness, even for eternity. But what Jesus is saying here is all of those things will keep you from the joy of dwelling with God for eternity. He's calling us to believe something different. Instead of an abundant life, it'll lead to everlasting death. This verse reminds us of what Jesus said in Mark 8. Whoever would save his life would, will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Well, where does Revelation 21, 1 to 8 leave us? What, what does it mean for today? Well, I think this passage is a call to believe it, even to the degree of imagining eternity. You, you see, you can't enjoy what you can't imagine. I think that's one of the most helpful things that I find in this study of eternity. We're supposed to ponder these things. We're supposed to think about these things because you can't enjoy what you can't imagine. My father had a passion to help scared young ladies who were experiencing unplanned pregnancies. You see, he had this heartfelt desire to save as many unwanted babies as possible. This led him into the pro-life movement when I was really little, and it led him to be the primary person to uh, found what's now called the Woman to Woman Pregnancy Resource Center here in town. And when my dad died in December, a lot of us had just a, a really comforting thought that, that all those many children that were saved, or that, that were not saved in that ministry, but that they had a heart for, all those little babies greeted my dad when he got to heaven. You see, like C.S. Lewis, my, my, my dad believed that most of the people in heaven were children. <laughs> Um, and this was a great C.S. Lewis thought. And listen, uh, going before my dad was a grandson, his parents, his grandparents. He, he missed all of those people. And, and I know he was just overjoyed to get to see them. But, but again, uh, you know, he had this belief that heaven was filled with unwanted children that God wanted. And we just had this comforting thought that all these children greeted my father when we got there. What a good imagination for us. What a beautiful picture when you're grieving the loss of your, your husband or your father. You see, you can't enjoy what you can't imagine. Imagining eternity is key to perseverance. You, you see, the, the reason why we don't persevere is that we don't have the right perspective on our trials. This week, I, I took a, a few minutes and just kind of calculated up all the number of soldiers who died in combat in, in our 10 major wars, okay? There's been a lot of smaller things, but if you look at our country's 10 major wars, beginning with the, the Revolutionary War into, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, if you look at all the combat deaths over those roughly, you know, 250 years or whatever it is, 
that number comes up to just over 650,000 uh, men and women who died in those 10 wars. By comparison, we've now lost over half a million people in the last 12 months from COVID-19. J- just to give you maybe another stat that uh, will we'll put some of this in perspective. The number one killer of Americans every year is heart disease, a heart attack or something related to heart issues. You know how many people that is roughly every year? It's about 650,000 people. And we've had in this 12 months now over half a million people die. Friends, we have been in a dark season surrounded by a lot of death. This, is, this has been a hard 12 months, right? And and there's a a temptation to become incredibly depressed in this period. And listen, if you haven't felt the burden and the darkness of of this period, you're maybe not normal, okay? This is just what this has been that we've walked through. But but we've got to be careful here because there's a real temptation in that depressed darkness and wrestling with these things. There's a real temptation to slide into really dark areas when we ponder some of this stuff. And, And in those moments, we're to capture our thoughts and when we're, when we're hurting, we're to, to capture our thoughts in those moments, and we're to imagine eternity. We're supposed to go back to those babies greeting my father. We're supposed to, to go back to those moments. You, you see, uh, I had a friend, uh, again, around the time that my father died, and he sent me such a sweet note that was such an encouragement that he had seen a picture that I posted on social media of uh, my, my dad loved traveling. He loved Hawaii. And his last trip to Hawaii, my mom snapped a picture of him holding up his phone and, and getting this really beautiful Hawaiian sunset. It's one of my favorite pictures of my dad. And I posted that, and my friend sent me this really encouraging note where he said, you know, uh, we're, I, your father was clearly someone who just uh, enjoyed beautiful and glorious things. He, he, he's now in heaven getting to enjoy the most glorious and the most beautiful of things. Like, what a wonderful thing, again, to ponder. And in that discouraging moment, in those dark moments, I had a friend kind of lift my eyes up and help me imagine eternity. That's how we persevere in those dark moments. We capture our thoughts and think of eternity. Finally, imagining eternity is a call to make sure your relationship with God is right today. Listen, are you going to experience dwelling with God for eternity, or are you going to experience that second death for eternity? Listen, there's no way to get around verse 8 there. Don't, don't waste this moment of walking in this room and just kind of shrugging your shoulders about eternal things. Listen, I'm going to go so far, I believe this confidently. If you're someone in here and you're not right with the Lord, you don't know where you're going to be, God's brought you into this room to look at that verse for a reason today. This is God's grace for you. Don't waste it. Listen, every time after we end our our teaching and we begin to worship, we have pastors and elders at the back that are just there to answer your questions and pray for you. If you don't know, if you're right with the Lord today, don't leave this room unsure. Don't waste this moment. God has brought you here for a reason. Is this all there is to life? Well, I think the clear answer is no. We have a glorious future, don't we? I've been on an Anselm kick. I, I read from Anselm last week. Anselm was a, was a medieval uh, theologian. And if you studied philosophy in college, you maybe wrestle with his ontological argument, which is just a total like pretzel of an argument that's weird and awesome. And anyway, um, you, you, it's going to just stick with you if you take time with Anselm. 
the last couple of weeks, I, I've just been on this Anselm kick, and, and this is a little bit longer, but let, stick with me because he's got some wonderful meditations about the joy of our eternity. There are kind of two parts to this, but, but, but hang with me here. He says that, for there is no mourning there, no weeping, no sorrow, and no fear. There's no sadness there, no difference, no envy, no distress, no temptation, no unhealthiness, no suspicion, no pretense, no flattery, no distraction, no sickness, no age, no death, no poverty, no night, no gloom, no need of eating or drinking or of sleeping. There's no fatigue. What can there be but perfect joy? Listen to these questions. Where, where, there is no, where there is neither trial nor distress, nor change of seasons, no, no summer too fierce, no winter too severe, where there is no cause for fear, what can there be but, uh, but uttermost security? When neither envy nor estrangement, what but, but real and perfect love, where no unsightliness but real and consummate beauty, where no poverty, what but perfect fullness, where, where there is nothing to oppress or burden. What can there be but plentitude of happiness? And there, old age and disease are never expected, never feared, but what truest health? Where death and mortality are altogether swallowed up, but there is eternal life. Now here's where it really gets good. Listen to what he says here. And what more can we require? Yes, indeed, we, we may ask for more, for something that transcends all this. I mean the vision, the knowledge, and the love of the Creator. He shall be seen in Himself and seen in all His creatures, ruling all things but without worry, sustaining all things but without exertion, communicating Himself in some strange way to each but without reducing Himself. That face shall be seen inviting all love and every longing. And then he ends with Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 2.9. The eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath, hath it entered into the heart of man what things God hath prepared for them that love him. Amen. Brothers and sisters, that's our glorious future. And if this world, uh, I know this world can be discouraging, and I know that there's moments where we can subtly believe, is this all there is? And it just feels like the, ends of the end of the world. However, the doctrine of the new heavens and the new earth is meant to uh, uh, persevere us in hope. It's supposed to lead us to a perseverance of joy. God is going to dwell with his people there. When we get there, we will no longer experience tears and death and sorrow. If we overcome and get there, our thirst will be satisfied. When we get there, all will be made right and all will be made whole. Amen? Brothers and sisters, imagine eternity in order to be encouraged and imagine eternity in order to persevere in this life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage and how it pulls our eyes up and out of this world. For those of us who uh, experience different trials right now, Lord, I pray that this passage would be encouraging. And, and then I pray that we would even do the spiritual exercise of imagining heaven, imagining what it's going to be like there. Lord, I thank you that you gave us this vision of the future and the hope that it brings us. May we be a people, even in our trials, that persevere in the joy of the Lord. May we see our future as a glorious future. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.